Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John speaks with Frank Verastro about the current moment in the energy markets. Then, John, Will, and I continue the conversation about how Middle Eastern producers are thinking about the near-term future and what that means for U.S.-Middle East relations moving forward. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Frank Verastro is a senior advisor with the Energy and Climate Change Program at CSIS. For many years, he served alongside me as senior vice president at CSIS and was a longtime director of what was then the Energy and National Security Program. He's worked in the White House, the Department of Energy, and the Department of the Interior, and he had a number of senior jobs in the energy industry, including as senior vice president at Pennzoil. Frank, welcome to Babel. Thanks, John. Glad to be with you. President Biden is going to Saudi Arabia in a few weeks. Is that going to relieve high energy prices? We've been arguing among ourselves or discussing among myself and my colleagues about what the quid is and what the quo is in this particular meeting. If you're going to Saudi Arabia to ask for additional supplies now, because the Saudis and the UAE are the only two countries that probably have access capacity, it's the absolute wrong time. Saudi Arabia is in the middle of the summer and the summer bird is when they supply crude oil for electricity generation in the country. So their ability to add huge volumes is limited right now and doesn't make a lot of sense, especially if you look at the gasoline situation now where people are talking about the crunch at the end of this quarter, not really being crude oil, but more refining capacity. So it sounds like even if the Saudis wanted to help the president on oil, they really can't. So what they could do is maybe some marginal production increase. But in fact, OPEC totally is like two and a half million barrels a day under quota. And certain countries like Algeria or Nigeria, Angola, Libya, they're all below quota and they're not going to come up anytime soon. So there's a deficit within OPEC. And is there a market signaling effect that the Saudis could have that would at least send a message to the markets that more oil is coming? Would that matter? That would help nominally. But quite honestly, the IEA countries have released crude oil stocks that are in excess of over a million barrels a day for the rest of the summer. And that hasn't helped a whole lot. It doesn't look like the loss of Russian oil so far has been all that significant. I mean, the original thought was 3 million barrels a day, which I thought was wildly outrageous, would be taken from the market. And if that had happened, prices would be higher. But so far, the actual reduction in Russian oil is somewhere between half million and a million and a half barrels a day. Now it is being rerouted. Oil that's not going to Europe is going to Asia, mostly China and India, and it's being sold for discount prices. But that's actually good for the world because it reduces the shortfall. Are Middle Eastern states poised to replace Russia as an energy supplier to Europe? So transportation logistics and oil quality are two very important considerations when you look at what refineries can handle to make and process products that consumers regionally need, right? So just to parse that a little bit and break it apart, Europe uses diesel fuel and we're sending a lot of diesel to Europe right now. They're sending us back gasoline to the East Coast because we don't have a lot of refining capacity on the East Coast. 
And that happens all the time. But the shipments between Europe and across the Atlantic Basin take a lot less time than rerouting from Asia. And so logistically moving these different supplies and finding refineries that can utilize it and still make products they want is really difficult and it's expensive. And when you ask about the total replacement, so the world can replace a 2 million barrel a day shortfall from Russia. It cannot replace a 7 million barrel a day shortfall from Russia. There's just no other big supplier like that. We've been talking about oil. Certainly gas is another part of the equation. And Russia supplies a lot of gas to Europe. There is an increasing amount of gas that is being produced in the Mediterranean. Is this going to create a renaissance for Mediterranean gas or perhaps even not a renaissance, but a moment of birth for Mediterranean gas and make it geostrategically important? So Mediterranean gas has been right on the cusp for a while now. When it looked like they were late to the party, when you looked at LNG suppliers from Qatar or from the United States or pipeline gas from Russia, it's like, where would they fit in a world that wants to decarbonize? And were some of these supplies coming late? But Europe's got to decide between their decarbonization and their de-Putinization policies here. It's going to be very difficult to live without gas in the short term. The conversions that people talk about for alternative fuels and renewables, that's not going to happen this year. It's not going to happen next year. So for the next several years, they're going to be looking at alternative supplies. I think one of the problems is that rhetorically, the commission hasn't given up on the green agenda, and they shouldn't, but they don't want long-term contracts because they feel that if you go out 20 years, that that undermines their environmental goals. Most of these new suppliers, especially in the LNG field, need these long-term contracts to justify investments, to get payout over a longer period of time. So unless you just want to buy spot gas, and then you'll pay whatever the going price is, that's really difficult. On the other hand, the Asian buyers are willing to pay higher prices and enter long-term contracts. The second piece I think on the Eastern Med is the competition, I think, is going to get a lot more stiff, right? So where it looked like a smaller piece of the market, opportunities for Egypt and Jordan and Israel to collaborate on different projects. I think the people that feel that they're faster to the table may try to capitalize on this opportunity. And you're going to see a lot more conflict in some of these areas that probably need to be there. By conflict, you mean conflict between producers on where the boundaries are? or I think boundary disputes will be there. I think this issue of infrastructure and pipeline laying could be an issue. I mean, we're also already having problems getting steel and the cost of new projects. So you're going to be bidding against other people that want to have access in this window where gas has an opportunity. And there's limited amount of people coming out of COVID. Steel manufacturing is really expensive. Logistic supply lines just aren't there. So there's a lot of people now trying to get in the space in a short period of time before they hit a decarbonization wall. You mentioned COVID and a lot of the discussion I've seen about high energy prices all blame it on the Ukraine conflict. To what extent has COVID and the uncertainty over COVID driven the price spikes you've seen? And to what extent is a fear of a post-COVID recession driving the reluctance of producers to pump more oil? That's absolutely the case. 
So oil and gas production takes years to bring on. So this didn't happen. <laughs> the ground for this was laid 2018, 2019. We've been doing underinvestment in part because there was a sense that we were transitioning to a post-fossil fuel world. Prices were low and permits and regulations didn't really favor oil and gas and coal production. When we got to 2020, the bottom fell out. Demand totally went away. On the United States, gasoline demand was down because people weren't commuting to work. Aviation fuel was down because no one was flying because of restrictions. As a result of that, refineries closed and producers, just like restaurants, shut in uneconomic production and laid off workers. And then, and this is what we wanted, was post-pandemic, you wanted the economies to come back. Well, guess what? The economies in some parts of the world came back stronger than anticipated. And the lags in the supply line created pent-up demand that is only mitigated by higher prices. And that's where we are. And to your point about being sensitive to prices, it was OPEC that decided when prices were low to enter into the OPEC plus reduction quota system where they took seven, eight million barrels a day off the market in order to draw down what they thought was excess inventory because the demand wasn't going to be there. So now we're in a situation where the excess inventory is gone. The production and capability of a lot of these member countries, even exclusive of Russia, just isn't there and demand is surging. The United States will add a million barrels a day of production this year, but it's light oil it can only go to certain places and it's not enough to make up for the shortfall. And if there's a global recession, then there might not be a shortfall at all. Right. So that's the, the flip side. There's some economists that believe that by the end of the second quarter, that we could actually be in a nominal global supply surplus in terms of supply demand balance. And when China at the beginning of the year had COVID restrictions, there was the concern that if they shut down again, that we'd have a situation where demand would crater and all these prices would go away in terms of new investment. It's like, why do you make those kind of investments if you're going to be back in a shortage where prices drop back to $60 a barrel? And if this is short-lived and these are long-term investments, how prudent is that? And that's where I think we are right now. How much volatility do you think there are going to be in energy prices over the next 10 years? We have this energy transition inhibiting people's decisions about what to invest in. Certainly high prices could be encouraging people now to buy electric cars or do other things that reduce demand. I mean, do you see prices going up and down a lot? Do you see this flattening out? Do you see us sort of falling into a curve or are we going to be peaks and valleys? Yeah, I think it's peaks and valleys for a variety of reasons, supply and demand, technical reasons, supply chain issues, geopolitical issues, and weather-related issues. That's the other thing. In the United States, we're just entering the hurricane season. Our refineries are running at 95% utilization. 50% of them are in the Gulf Coast. So even if they increased output, if we had a hurricane that took a lot of that supply out, we'd be in a whale of hurt. So if you start looking out 10 years, depending on what your mitigation goals are for climate and emissions, it's going to be a really uneven future. And I think there was a way to avoid it. If the policies of some of these countries, including the United States, 
stated at the outset that we're going to need some portion of oil and gas for the next 20 years. Let's map this out. Everyone can't have an electric car now because they don't exist. There's greenflation for some of the costs of the components of the electric car. We have rare earth minerals and metals that we just can't have access to because they're controlled by someone else and the prices will be higher. And with the inflationary impacts, people don't have the money to buy them. In addition to that, in areas where they do have the money to buy them, California said if people went out and wholesale bought electric cars right now, they would have blackouts on the grid because the grid isn't ready. Right now, if you charge your car at night in most states, when the sun's not shining, the wind's not blowing, and there's not adequate capacity and storage, you're probably doing it with coal-based electrons, right? which is not good for the environment. So I think we're going to need natural gas in times of hurricanes and floods. When you see them on TV, the hospitals are open because they have natural gas generators. We've got to find a better solution. And the industry ought to be working harder in the near term to reduce methane emissions. But the viability of this system, which the scope and scale of it is so large, we're just not ready for the transition tomorrow. And by governments saying that we're going to have a more ambitious timeline, I think we're just going to have situations where consumers will suffer and you're going to get a lot of non-compliance until we get there. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't do both, right? We should manage the current crisis and still keep our foot on the gas. Bad analogy. <laughs> but in terms of transitioning to a lower emissions future, a lower carbon future. But we have to be mindful of the scale and scope. And if the Ukraine situation didn't bring that out, I don't know what will. What does that mean for Middle Eastern producers and their relationship with the United States? When I talk to the Middle East folks now, a lot of them feel that they are really in the driver's seat. That if you look at the cleaner burning fuels, that you question how you get to cleaner burning fuels, but some of the regulations, especially in Europe, are going to look for lowest emission gas or lowest emission oil. If you're a big producer and you divide every barrel by the total denominator in the country, that makes you a cleaner burning fuel. If you're a small producer, you don't have that same luxury. I think the IEA made a horrible mistake when they came out with their paper last year that talked about we don't need any new production anywhere in the world. What that doesn't take into consideration is what if there's an upheaval in a certain producing country. I'm sure they never anticipated losing 7 million barrels a day of Russian production. But do you want to be beholden on a geopolitical scale to producers in a volatile part of the world with transportation that has to go halfway around the world? Or is it better to have some homegrown energy closer to home? So I think the new security debate is reliable, affordable, and available and clean. But there's a variety of things that fit those categories. So it's not all, let's go back to total fossil fuels. And I don't think the industry wants to do that and shouldn't be doing that because we're going to have to deal with the consequences of climate change. But in the near term, you can only deal with systems that work with what people have, whether it's utilities or businesses or average consumers, right? So they can't use energy forms that they can't accommodate in their system, or it's not available or too expensive. 
Now, for the Middle East, I do think that the OPEC situation has worked well over the past couple of years. If all the non-sanctioned or the sanctioned countries come back in under a quota arrangement, Venezuela, Iran, new supply from Nigeria, from Libya, the volumes that potentially could be on the market means that at some point they're going to work to throttle back. And I don't know how they do that, especially if people are saying, for all those years I was under quota, I just want free reign. So what does that do to the Saudis if all of a sudden the Iranians say, I want to put two and a half million barrels a day on the market and I want to do it right away. So I don't think it's going to be an easy path. I do think that the United States needs to reestablish ties for more reasons than just energy. It seems to me we're moving into a bifurcated world between the autocrats and the democracies, and you can't let the Middle East gravitate towards China or Russia because of the United States and the West deciding we don't need them or want them. Although they're not very democratic. No, I get that too. But you you deal with governments and the cards that you're dealt. And I think that's the problem that President Biden is having now going to Saudi Arabia and giving some of the earlier statements about castigating MBS for Khashoggi's murder. You've talked about the necessary role for fossil fuels going to the future as we transition toward more renewables. But the other thing we can use oil and gas for is petrochemicals. And petrochemicals and, and all the plastics that surround us are made from oil and gas. Fertilizer is made from gas. Are those other uses for oil and gas, the rise of petrochemicals, the centrality of petrochemicals to so much of our economy, is that enough to give energy producers in the Middle East a long tail on production even after the energy transition? Or is it likely to be a commodity prices will go down and they're really going to have some very hard sledding after 20 or 30 years? So after 30 years, I think a lot can change. It's just the difficulty of trying to get a 2030 or a 2035 inflection point. Your point on petrochemicals is well taken. So oil and gas molecules are used in plastics, petrochemicals, foodstuffs, medicines, components of your automobile that have nothing to do with fuel, right? They're in every day in your life. Transportation probably makes up 40% of petroleum-based consumption. A lot of the same petrochemicals can be derived from natural gas, from lighter hydrocarbons, and some of that will occur and should occur. It would take a reconfiguration of the refining sector to be able to break down certain oils and just make that slate of profitable products. And we're not quite there yet. In fact, we're not there by a long shot. And the question is, what does demand look like for those ancillary products in the future? So that's why I think some of this needs to be more thoughtfully laid out, not just by policymakers and activists, but by engineers and financial people. And I think that's what's missing in this conversation. You have a lot to talk about. Frank, thanks very much for joining us on Babel. Next, John, Will, and I continue the conversation about how Middle Eastern producers are thinking about the current moment and the near-term future, and what that means for U.S.-Middle East relations. Barastro made an interesting point that right now, large Middle Eastern oil and gas producers feel like they're in the driver's seat. What do you think they're looking at right now? How do you think they are looking at the present moment? And what do you think they see as their opportunities right now? 
So I was just in the Gulf in the last several weeks in both the UAE and Saudi Arabia, the two only countries with spare capacity in the world. I think in some ways they're feeling a little bit relieved that the world can't turn away from them, that they haven't become irrelevant to geopolitics. And while they always thought they were relevant to geopolitics, they were worried the rest of the world didn't think they were relevant to geopolitics. And that's changed. But they're still tremendously worried about what the longer term future looks like and what their economies will look like. And you know, one of the challenges they have is it's easy to build up enthusiasm for economic diversification and for belt tightening when prices are low. When prices are high, there's a tendency to take your eye off the ball. And one of the challenges they have is to seize this moment to prepare for the next moment. Yeah, and John was just in, in the GCC. I was just in Iraq. Things maybe aren't looking so good for Iraq right now, in part because there is this new flow of sort of discounted Russian oil, which is competing with what Iraq usually exports. And so I think that is a challenge for Iraq. But when you talk to people as well, the situation for regular Iraqis is not great right now. I met people in Mosul who said to me, I've just waited for two hours at a gas station to get fuel. And yet we're one of the largest oil producers in the world. Like this is a crazy, crazy situation. And as John said, there is also the fear that governments who have increased revenues will take the eye off the ball in terms of reforms. And certainly I saw the desire for reform really shrinking at the moment in Iraq because it's just not seen as such a pressing priority. And then I think when you look at other countries around the region as well, there is also probably a sense of what I would argue is false confidence about the potential of future revenues from oil and gas. Countries, certainly countries like Lebanon, which are very much hoping to take advantage of their ability to export gas in the future, seem to think that they can just sit back and wait until all of this money is going to come in and that will solve their economic problems. And I don't think that's how it's going to go. I mean, we're a long way from that right now. And so I think in some ways, higher oil and gas prices are probably creating a sense of false confidence for some of these countries. I think that brings us to an interesting point also that Verastro made. So he said that oil and gas prices are likely to be peaks and valleys over the next 15 years. How do you think that volatility is going to affect Middle Eastern oil and gas producers? And how do you think it's going to affect their diversification programs as they try to turn their economies away from an over-reliance on oil revenue? It's really going to be a test of governance and a test of how forward-looking these leaders are. Are they going to take advantage of these increased revenues? to stand firm with some of their strategies of cutting public spending, of bolstering their reserves and saving these added revenues for future rainy days or, or future days when oil revenues are playing a less significant role in their economies? Or are they pressured by their people to sort of address more immediate demands and to increase public spending at these moments. And I think it's going to be really tricky for them constantly shifting as oil prices go up and down and the peaks and valleys that Frank Frastro was talking about. I think it's also, in many ways, this should be a sort of more impetus to invest for the future and to try and prepare for renewables. Certainly with fossil fuel prices fluctuating so much, 
it's a riskier investment. And so I think trying to shift towards investments which seem to be surer, even if it's more expensive right now and, and the technology is just getting there, I think those alternative investments are looking more attractive. If you're not investing in oil and gas exploration, it may be that we're going to have much greater volatility in pricing for oil and gas because people aren't investing either in exploration and production or in the sort of storage refining space because that requires a longer payoff time. And we may find that the market, which we're used to having a lot of resilience, doesn't have a lot of resilience because it can't either increase production or diminish productions. And even when you're talking about people who, who do renewable energy, electric cars, all those kinds of things, everything in that supply chain becomes more unpredictable. Suddenly you have tremendous shortages, suddenly you have tremendous surpluses. One of the points that Frank made, and it comes from an energy perspective, but it's very hard to invest when there is so little clarity on what either supplier demand is going to look like. And it may be that you have a class of people who just invests and tries to speculate and that takes care of the market. But it may be that people stay away from the market and what you end up with is tremendous economic volatility, including within the oil producers, because nobody's in an environment where they feel they can earn back investments in trying to smooth it out. So they just let it swing. I think that brings up a good point about renewables. So you both just came back, as you mentioned, from field research in the Middle East. What are you hearing about renewable development and sustainability in the Middle East today? So I think renewables are at really different levels across the region and countries are moving at very different speeds on investment in renewables. The UAE is far ahead in the region in that regard. And that's, I think, partly because of concerns about its domestic gas production, which caused it to have to invest in, in alternatives. But then there are other actors that are coming up very fast. Certainly, if Saudi Arabia achieves anything like the goals that it has pledged and stated, then it will become by far the region's leader in terms of renewable energy. But I think in other places, we're seeing renewable uptake not led by the state, but led by individuals out of necessity. So in crisis-affected countries across the region, at the domestic and community level, we're seeing a huge flourishing of alternative energy, in particular solar energy. I'm talking about places like Lebanon, Iraq, Syria, Yemen. But this is, in the grand scheme of things, not happening at a significant scale at the moment. And I think there are real problems about the fact that it is at the domestic level and storage is very expensive. It requires a lot of investment. And so then we come down to the issue of financing. And I think recently, a lot of Middle Eastern countries have made big pledges. Certainly in the run-up to COP26 in Glasgow last year, there were really ambitious pledges made in terms of the energy transition. But now what we need to see going forward is, is the financing there to support these efforts? And how do they actually get implemented? And when do they start being implemented? It's one thing to make these statements, but I think the focus of 
COP this year in Egypt, and then even the following year in the UAE. I think it's going to be in, in Dubai now, not Abu Dhabi. In Dubai at the, at, the, at the expo site. Yeah, yeah. So I think this will help put a lot of focus on renewables in the region. But really, the issues, I think, for these conferences are going to be on implementation and financing, because those are the biggest barriers at the moment. And certainly having it in Egypt and the United Arab Emirates is going to put more focus on regional states and what governments can and should be doing. I would expect that both the government of Egypt, which is 100 million people, the government of the UAE, which is a major oil producer, will both try to do things that will move the needle both domestically, but also on the regional piece. So I think you're going to see a lot more attention to sustainable energy in the Middle East over the next two years than you've seen in the last few years. So just to shift gears a little bit, there's a debate going on in Washington right now about what role the Middle East should play in U.S. global strategy as the United States is no longer as directly reliant on Middle Eastern oil. But as we've seen with the war in Ukraine and the effort to shift away from Russian gas and oil, the Middle East still plays a really big role and things that happen there matter for the U.S. economy and the strategic partnerships we have with allies in Europe and Asia. What do you think the current moment means for the U.S. right now? And how do you think U.S. policymakers are thinking about the Middle East coming out of it? Well, certainly the fact that the president's going to Saudi Arabia and is going to meet with a number of partner countries while there is a sign that President Biden felt that he was a little bit too disengaged from the Middle East and wants to engage more. He certainly doesn't want to over-engage and the sentiment of the Obama administration and the Trump administration and the Biden administration is the same, that the Middle East can absorb endless American money, energy, troops, and still not be stable. That being said, if the U.S. were to disengage completely, I think there's a growing appreciation of just how many U.S. interests are negatively affected by that. And so what I think you're seeing in Washington is a desire to find the right balance. The Middle East is tangled up in a whole range of things that matter to Americans, including Asian security, because so many of our Asian partners and allies get energy from the Middle East. The activities of a potential adversary like China in the Middle East are very consequential to American national interests. So I think you're finding the administration and Washington more broadly is trying to properly calibrate what the United States does in the Middle East, how it does it, what it puts effort into, how it can create broader patterns of cooperation in the region that might allow the U.S. to be less directly engaged. What this leads to, where the end state is, I'm not sure. It's easier to describe where you want to go than get there. And you have countries like Iran that sometimes cooperate with where you want them to go and oftentimes don't cooperate with where you want them to go. So I think that there was a, a little bit irrational exuberance about how much the U.S. could wash its hands of the Middle East, how we were self-reliant for energy and we didn't have to care. And I think that argument's fallen by the wayside. But what we should do instead, how we should protect our interests while diminishing the price we pay to do so is a challenge not only for this administration, but I think for several U.S. administrations to come. And I thought that Frank Verastro made a really interesting point when he said 
we're now at a stage where we have to choose between uh, deputinization or decarbonization and that Europe has to choose between that. And I think this moment has really shown just how national security does work against the climate goals that certainly President Biden made one of his overarching priorities when he came into office. And that's a really tricky thing to manage for the Biden administration. I mean, he famously has talked about having a foreign policy that works for the middle class, which probably means trying to lower costs for energy for American families. And I think, unfortunately, that works against the goals of the energy transition to a degree. And so I think what we're probably seeing now is a more uneven transition. And these last few months have shown that if anyone thought it was going to be a straight path towards decarbonization, then that has clearly been proven that that's not going to be the case. And there's going to be a huge number of really difficult choices for U.S. policymakers as they balance between these competing priorities and try to keep domestic constituencies on side. John and Will, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Caleb. Thanks, Caleb. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. Thank you.